Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is Frankenstein with Rose Eveleth, also from the past. We are recording this on Monday, November 2nd. Uh, The world is going to be different uh, in the couple days when this episode comes out. So we uh, don't know what that's like. We know that we uh, love you, conspirators, and we're going to do our best to make the world better no matter what that world looks like. Absolutely. And I think that we really do touch on that kind of mentality in the episode. So hopefully this is a a beacon of light in whatever the future has to hold. Absolutely. Rose is a podcaster we have admired for years. Uh, Her show Flash Forward is incredible, as well as the now family of shows in the Flash Forward Presents uh, Situation Network. And whether you listen to Advice Foreign from the Future or Flash Forward, or you are being introduced to her wonderful perspective in this episode, we think there is a ton of great stuff for you to dive into. Definitely check out Open World, too. It's a beautiful, like, hope punk anthology series, and it's great. What is also great, Julia, is our newest patrons, Natalie and Jenna. They join the distinguished ranks of our supporting producer-level patrons, Philip, Alicia, Allison, Deborah, Hannah, Jen, Jessica, Keegan, Nieselkins, Landon, Liz, Megan, Megan Linger, Megan Moon, Molly, Nikki, Phil Fresh, Polly, Riley, Sarah, and Skyla. I always think about just like the bright future of tomorrow whenever I think about these patrons. Absolutely. And I also want to thank our legend level patrons who, like the legend of Frankenstein's monster, have, you know, evolved and gotten more complex over time. Audra, Chelsea, Drew, Francis, Jack Marie, Lada, Livy, Mark, Morgan, Necrofancy, Renegade, and BME Up Scotty. Just take me to a universe where they can BME Up too. I know, right? And oh man, I just, this episode is so great. I think you guys are going to really like it. It's all about not just my favorite thing, which is the mythology of cultural works, but also uh, different mythologies of like, oh, it's just, it's so good. Rose is great. Rose really is. And you know what else is great, Amanda? We don't recommend a lot of music on this show. That's true. I just have been jamming so hard to the Mountain Goat's new album, Getting Into Knives. It's very good. I got it on vinyl and I'm going to put it on my wall because it's so beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I love the cover art so, so much. And the music just, I cried real hard at one point listening to it. So that'll do it. If that's where you need a nice cathartic cry, highly recommend this album. I had a little cathartic cry after we had our live show last week, just because it was so nice to see people show up and enjoy what we were doing in front of us and to have that feeling, you know, a little bit different, but to have somewhat of that feeling back of performing for uh, conspirators right in front of us, which I think is so fun. And if you missed the live stream, that's totally okay because you can still buy a replay of the show and watch the video just like people did on the actual live stream day. Go to spiritspodcast.com slash live to grab your ticket and get the link to the show. It's honestly, I think it is one of our best live shows we've ever done. The Make of Myth was so much fun. I really, really loved it. And it's definitely worth watching and rewatching, even if it isn't live. Absolutely. Amanda, I also want to let our listeners know that we're doing something kind of special for American Thanksgiving this year. So if you have a problem, a question, or searching for advice that you think a mythological figure could potentially solve for you, send us an email. We're title it Myth Advice, and it is going to be a fun little experiment episode for us to try out. Yeah, I cannot wait. It is going to be amazing and have a special guest in on the episode. 
and it's just going to be wonderful. Yeah. So spiritspodcast.com slash contact. Include myth advice in the subject line, or you can email it to us directly at spiritspodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you are looking for even more stuff to take your mind off of the present or to listen to while, I don't know, like uh, volunteering, making donations, making the civic community that you live in better, you should check out the Multicrew. We have a weekly friendly debate podcast called Head, Heart, Gut that we have been publishing for over a year now exclusively for Multicrew members. And if you've ever wondered with all of these big holidays coming up and maybe some family time, whether it's together or virtually, if you've ever wondered or had a passionate argument about the best course of a holiday meal, which I definitely have, you don't have to wonder anymore because we're going to settle it once and for all in this month's Head Haircut. Also, if you need arguments to have over Thanksgiving dinner that are extremely low stakes. That are not politics. That are not politics. <laughs> Head Haircut is a great show to kind of use as a jumping off point. Yeah, it is a really fun structure, too. So like if you and your uh, your family and friends want to, you know, use our debate format to talk about like the best, uh, I don't know, like of a trio or the best uh, uh, breakfast pastry, whatever you want to do. It can be a really fun way just to talk to people and get your adrenaline up and, you know, get your arguments out in a way that ultimately is extremely low stakes. For sure. So you can join the multi-crew at multicrew.club. So with that, we want to just give you a big virtual hug. We love you. We're going to get through this and enjoy the latest episode of Spirits, Frankenstein with Rose Eveleth. Rose Eveleth, welcome to Spirits. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad to have you. Yay! Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Longtime listener, first time caller, I think. Uh, so <laughs> I'm excited to talk. <laughs> yeah, and the person whose podcasts I think I recommend the most. You are Aww. the uh, yeah. proprietor of Flash Forward Network, Flash Forward Presents, the excellent show, Advice Born from the Future, Flash Forward, of course, which if you listen to Spirits, you should already subscribe to Flash Forward, um, and the new Open World, which is now complete and you can marathon it in its entirety. Yes. Yes. It's very exciting. That show had a wild ride. It was originally with a different company. They laid everybody off. There were like lawyers. It was a whole thing, but it's done now and you can Mm -hmm. listen to it. And I'm stoked. Yeah. So it's exciting to um, it is exciting to be able to like save a project from the brink of, you know, capitalistic collapse, I suppose. (laughs) And it's a uh, solar punk anthology, right? Yes, yes. So every episode is a piece of audio fiction that sort of looks at the future in a hopeful way in some capacity. And then after that, I interview the creators of those pieces about their work, sort of like how they think about the future, what they're hopeful about, how to stay hopeful amidst all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, which is a tall order, I think, for many people. Um, And also just sort of a little bit about why it's worth trying to be hopeful. I think nihilism can be very appealing sometimes. But um, we sort of make the case for hope uh, as an active practice as opposed to just sort of like accepting things the way they are. I love that. It's definitely the show we need right now. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. It was funny. We started it last year. And I feel like as 2020 crept along, we were like, oh, boy, OK, <laughs> we're doing this. <laughs> and crucially, you are the only person with better, I think, short sleeve patterned button downs than Julia and myself. Yes. So, true. you know, 
I just, I aspire. This shirt that I'm wearing currently is, uh, was a gift from a friend who saw it and was like, I have to just purchase this and send it to you. What a good Um, friend. I know. It's great. It's like, yeah, Instagram ads have me totally pinned. I don't know if you get those ads and you're (laughs) like, God damn it. I do want that. (laughs) I get my, like my, my rose ads is what, is how I think of them as the, like the, the bold, you know, queer ish uh, button downs. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yeah. I've been calling it Butch Miss Frizzle is kind of like the aesthetic, I think. (laughs) That's it. Incredible. Well, today we are here to talk not about fashion uh, or even the future, but the past. Tell us, Rose, all about Frankenstein, please. Okay. Frankenstein is an incredible story. It starts as a book by Mary Shelley. And if you have not read Frankenstein, I feel like, A, you should do that. Mm. If you have read Frankenstein... You may want to reread Frankenstein, in part because it's just good and not many things that were published in 1818 are actually still very readable, I would argue. Mm -hmm. Frankenstein very much is. But if you have already read Frankenstein, you probably have not read the 1818 version of Frankenstein, which I highly recommend seeking out. So Frankenstein starts, the story of Frankenstein starts really in 1815 when there is a volcanic eruption. So there's a volcanic eruption. It causes the next year, 1816, um, basically a summer that is super dark. It's like cold and dark because of all the ash in the air. I am in California right now, so we experienced that actually somewhat recently with the fires, Mm -hmm. where all of a sudden it was dark and cold all day. And I was like, hmm, I should write a horror novel. Um, But I didn't. (laughs) Um, Or sleep with Lord Byron, you know. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't do that either. Lord Byron's here. We can't swim (laughs) in the lake. Let's create a, uh, you know, create a whole genre, please. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, yes. So Frankenstein is the original horror novel, right? It is the beginning of the horror genre in many people's eyes. I think that's fair to say. It is written by... Mary Shelley, in 1816, started in 1816, finished and published in 1818. Most people, however, have read the 1831 version, which Mm -hmm. is actually somewhat different. And it's worth, if you have read it, if you've, all this to say is if you've read the book and you think you've read the book, I would recommend actually there's, you can buy a version that has both in it um, and you can get it from the library probably too, where you can see the differences between the 1818 version and the 1831 version. So the 1818 version is published without a name on it. There's no name on the book because women authors were like not a thing that people were stoked about. The second edition, published in 1823, has uh, Mary Shelley's name on it. And that is also a scandal because Mm. people are like, oh, no, this story, it was published in a three, it was a three volume novel. This novel that we loved and everyone kind of the critics were really excited about was written by a woman. Oh. Which is a problem. <laughs> oh, it was no. a reveal. Yes. People didn't know. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. No one. No one knew. Well, so so it was revealed that it was Mary Shelley. Uh, there were two reactions. The first was that all of a sudden the critics panned it, even though they had liked it before. And wow. the other version of it, other thing that happened was they assumed that Percy Shelley, her then husband, had written it. Right. Like, of course, she could not have written it. Sure. And Percy Shelley did write the prologue and he did actually help her edit it. And different versions of the book have more or less of his hand in it. You can tell it's a Percy Shelley section if the writing is like extremely florid and just like way too much. Mm -hmm. And Mary Shelley's writing is actually very direct, which is what makes Frankenstein still very readable today. Right. It is very like straightforward and descriptive and kind of like the books that you might read today. So most people have probably read the 1831 version, which has a bunch of changes to it, which we can get into once we start talking about the rest of it. So Volcano erupts 1815, 1816. Mary Shelley uh, has just had a miscarriage, lost child, is very depressed. She is with Percy Shelley 
They're not married yet. They are like sad, also somewhat in a hot spot in terms of like being together, being not married, having potentially had a baby, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. They decide they are going to escape for the summer to their friend's cottage on the lake. I guess it's not really a cottage. It's like kind of more like a mansion. Yeah, (laughs) it's a mansion, but... So rich people are like, oh, yes, my like cottage. And you're like, that has 19 rooms in it. That's not a cottage. <laughs> it seemed quaint to them. And that's what matters. Exactly. Very Instagrammable. Reminds me of early pandemic. Where exactly. Where everybody <laughs> reveals themselves to have country retreats. Right. Exactly. And you're like, where are all of you? Like, <laughs> what is happening here? Oh, your Connecticut summer home? Okay. Exactly. Yes. So they go to Lake Geneva to go live with Lord Byron and John Polidori, who are these like other intellectuals. So Mary Shelley is born into a very intellectual family. Her mother was actually a very early feminist who died when she was very, very young. She basically, I think Mary Shelley was maybe a couple of years old. Um, And her father was a very famous scholar anarchist. So she kind of was like, yeah. So she was already kind of like in this literary world, in this kind of like, high society academic kind of group. So that's how she kinds of hooks up with all these people. Anyway, they go to Lake Geneva and they're like, it's this weird, creepy summer. There's no sun. It's cold. We're in Lake Geneva. Everyone's depressed. Mary Shelley's depressed because she had a miscarriage. Everyone else is depressed because they're too rich and it's cold and it's not a good summer. And they're like, why don't we have a horror story writing contest? Which is like, sure, why not? Um, yeah, that's what people did back yeah, then. Yeah, it's if a totally normal thing. it was like cold thing. and bored, yeah. you would tell scary stories. Exactly. I do really love the idea of a bunch of friends who are all like macabre enough that they're all like, <laughs> let's write horrifying stories to amuse each other. Yes. We're just so goth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. I was just watching um, the, this is a total aside. I was just watching the not most recent, but one season ago, Great British Bake Off, where there's the mm. creepy lady. Uh, and I loved, loved her. her. <laughs> I loved her. I like don't even I actually don't love horror. I find it too scary. I'm very easily spooked. Mm-hmm. And so like her aesthetic is not my aesthetic, but I appreciate a commitment, you know, mm-hmm. like I just really appreciate going hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. So so they're in Lake Geneva and Mary Shelley's like actually really into this idea, likes to write, is a good writer, but she can't think of anything to write about. And so she's like, what am I going to do? You know, and and she's not the only one. None of She's the only person who creates something readable out of this challenge, to be fair. But so at the time, and she had written in um, letters and stuff later on that she was stuck. She didn't know what to do. And one night she's sitting there in uh, she is, I believe, the only woman there uh, among the sort of like main group of people. Mm -hmm. She's sitting there and she's listening to these two men, Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, drunkenly recount a bunch of science incorrectly. Sure. <laughs> oh, my like, God. Rose. Who has not been there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no one's been there more than you. <laughs> I know. It's true. It's funny. I was joking with someone. I was like, who among us hasn't been there? And they were like, some people don't have that experience. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that is my life. So she's listening to these two men recount the experiments of Erasmus Darwin, who is a dis- uh, predecessor to Charles Darwin. And Erasmus Darwin believed that you could coax life out of garbage, right? So this is before we really understood like where life comes from or like mm-hmm. the idea that bacteria exists on surfaces, right? There's things that we cannot see, et cetera, et cetera. So they would look at a pile of garbage and they would see like fruit flies emerge and they would think, okay, well, those fruit flies were created by that garbage, right? So this is the idea of spontaneous generation that mm-hmm. life kind of comes out of decay, right? Which is like at the time, totally reasonable. Like if you have no idea how any of this works, like sure, why not? And so Erasmus Darwin would do all these experiments where they would basically try to 
he and these other scientists would try to seal a jar full of flour and then see if anything grew in it. And the idea being that it was sterile because it was clean and they couldn't see anything in there. But of course, as we all know, <laughs> there's stuff in there that you can't see as we record this in the midst of a pandemic. Like there's invisible stuff everywhere that could kill you. <laughs> there's also there's so much here. There's I mean, they're making a sourdough starter, basically. Mm-hmm. You're presenting yeah. hilarious. It is dark. It is cold. There's natural disasters. Nobody's going anywhere. I mean, listen, yeah. it's kind of. Exactly what happened 200 years ago again. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And we're all like telling scary stories to each other about the future. Um, yeah. And uh, here we are. And so so they're recounting this and they're like talking about these experiments. But they're, of course, they're drunk and they're not getting any of them correct. And so at one point they are saying that Erasmus Darwin was able to coax life out of vermicelli, which um, means little worm in Italian uh, it technically has only ever really been applied to pasta, right? Like many mm-hmm. of you may be familiar with the idea of vermicelli noodles. So basically, they are like, yes, he got these. He got this pasta to come to life, basically somehow. Mary Shelley's just listening to these guys, probably just being like, oh Jesus Christ, <laughs> you know, like whatever. Drinks brandy silently. Yeah, just like like uh huh, sure, sure, sure. Um, and probably what they were trying to talk about was a small organism called a vorticella which is a real thing. And vorticella are um, actually quite interesting. You can dry them out and then rehydrate them and they can retain some function. Kind of like if you've ever heard of like huh. water bears, tardigrades, where they can sure. like live in that suspended state of being dried out to desiccation and then kind of come back to life. Vorticella can do similar things. And so that's probably what they were talking about. But instead, they decided that he like had made noodles come to life. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> like, sure, mm-hmm. why not? Checks out. So Mary Shelley overhears this and she to her credit, is like, this is bullshit. You definitely don't know what you're talking about. But it does sort of like get her thinking about bringing life back. Obviously, she's just had this death of her infant. Like she is very much processing that grief. And she's thinking a lot about life and death. You know, her mom died when she was really young. She's had a lot of death in her life. What if you could create life out of death or out of nothing? And she also tells the story that when she was sort of thinking about this, it was late at night. She she sort of wakes up in the middle of the night with this vision of this story. She looks out and there's a super bright moon and mm. it just sort of like all comes together and she kind of has this vision. And then she sets out and writes Frankenstein. Wonderful. Which is this great story. Um, and Frankenstein is also sort of inspired, likely inspired. She never actually says one of the interesting things people will often argue that um Oh, very in in all the movie versions, there's a stri- the bolt of lightning, right? That comes in, and that's what animates Frankenstein. That's like sure. the main thing. In the books, she's actually much less specific about how this works and what it actually is. She's very vague about it, which I think is actually sort of part of the enduring appeal of the story. It could kind of be any boogeyman where it's like, oh, science going too far, like playing God, et cetera, et cetera. Many people have referred to CRISPR in sort of Frankensteinian Mm. terms, right, as like the current boogeyman for science. She kind of comes up with this story. Now, the other funny thing about the full moon part of the story, she's written this in letters where she talks about like she had this vision, she wakes up, there's this bright moon. And once again, men do not believe her and for sure. years and years and years they there was all of this stuff about how like oh yeah she's probably just being overly dramatic that definitely never happened and then at one point some astronomers actually went back and figured out like was there a very bright moon on that day at that time and it turns out there was she was not mm-hmm. lying <laughs> like, eat shit like, everyone else yeah exactly um but the other interesting thing about the story to me and then i think the impact of the story is also super interesting is that this question of what actually animates 
Frankenstein's monster, which we should mm. be clear to say. It's Frankenstein is the doctor. The monster <laughs> is Frankenstein's monster, which everyone always gets wrong and is sort of a funny joke to me. So when Mary Shelley was very young, there were these series of experiments that were very, very famous called the galvanism experiments, the corpse galvanism experiments. Basically, this was scientists realizing that if you apply an electrical current to certain muscles, they will move, right? Like even after something is dead. Mm -hmm. So um, early on, uh, Galvani had, there's actually some really amazing sketches of this. He's like out on a back patio in Italy and he has a weather vane and a lightning rod and a cable and it's attached on this like lovely little wrought iron table to a dead frog that's just like still laid out (laughs) and he's just waiting for a storm. Yeah, the pictures are great. Um, And then when the lightning hits the lightning rod and the light, the electrical current goes, the, the frog's leg twitches, right? And this is before scientists really understood, again, like what animates life, how muscles move, this idea of like electrical potential. This is before we had batteries. But this is like right around this idea of like, what is electricity? How do people move? Like, how does any of this work? Galvanism, which people may have heard of. I love a word origin. <laughs> yes. I love a word origin. So that's where it comes from, Galvani. Galvani has a, uh, a nephew who decides to take his experiments one step further. Aldini. Um, And Aldini uh, is like, you know, it would be really sweet if I were to apply this to dead people instead of just frogs. Sure. Classic nephew of somebody with good intentions who sounds like a magician and just wants to one up his uncle. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And like he does this on like horses. He like he he finds some large animals to kind of practice on. He feels confident. There's a couple problems with applying this to people. So not (laughs) well. There are some ethical problems, <laughs> first of all. But there are also problems around like not every organism goes through the process of rigor mortis, right? So like when a person dies, they get stiff. That's like a very classic thing that many people know happens. If you want to move a dead person's leg, it's very difficult once rigor mortis has set in. Different organisms have different versions of that. Sometimes it never happens. Sometimes it sets on way later. But humans sort of have a pretty clear window for rigor mortis. And so what he needed to do this was a very fresh corpse. Like he couldn't just go, not like the regular people who could just dig up people in the graveyard, like regular right. corpse robbers, grave robbers, etc. No, he needed a fresh corpse. So he went to a murder trial. And basically, this guy, everyone kind of assumed that he was going to be convicted and hung to death. And so Aldini like had a deal with the judge and was like, I'm going to just grab this guy as soon as he gets killed. <laughs> I have read a couple of rumors, and I've never been able to substantiate this, that he bribed the judge to issue the like mur- conviction and death sentence. I've never seen that proven anywhere, but also like, I would totally believe that. That's like seems like the kind oh, of thing yeah. this guy would yeah. do. <laughs> So so she, he grabs the corpse. He brings it to this sort of medical amphitheater, right, where there's people waiting. And he hooks it up and he runs the current and the corpse sits up, right, on the table. What a bold choice to be like, I'm not going to test this out first. We're just going to oh, grab no. the first fresh dead body we can find. Everyone gather around. Yeah. It's hard to get a fresh body, man. You can't waste them on, you know, you got to do it for the gram. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you do have to do it for the gram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pixar it didn't happen basically is his is his whole ethos. And so he does it and like people just like lose their fucking minds, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, "Oh yeah. my god." How, like I mean, it is incredible. If you've never like if we now kind of understand what's going on here, but if you do not understand and you see a dead person sit up on a table, like that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And also opens up a lot of questions of like what is death? What is life? Like how do things move around? All all of this stuff. And those experiments 
obviously got a ton of attention. And there were all of these newspaper articles about it. And this was all happening when Mary Shelley was very, very young. So she was like growing up probably hearing about this stuff constantly. Mm -hmm. So when she wrote Frankenstein, it's never actually, the word galvanism is never used. Electricity is actually not really mentioned. She never actually says what it is that animates the monster. But everyone assumes that that's what she's talking about. Because that's sort of like the thing that's in the air. That's the thing everyone's talking about. Um, And everyone assumes that Mary Shelley is like, pulling from this history, which she probably is, right? That's what she's thinking of, but it's not specifically and explicitly stated in the book. Mm. So that's the other interesting thing to me about that story is like you have all of these, well, after the corpse galvanism experiments, bioelectricity becomes very trendy as a thing. And with that, there come tons of scam science, right? Like various Mm. electrical corsets and like just all the stuff that you might think of that, you know, scammers would would do. What, what would an electrical corset do? Oh, slim you, obviously. Cure hysteria, obviously. Julia. Right. Or All get right. rid of fat. Yes, yeah. Keep your womb in the right place. If it starts mm-hmm. to move around, you got to mm-hmm. keep, keep it down keep, there. Got to just, yeah, keep it in there. Okay. Yeah. I like to think of them as like a weird taser for like if you, if you someone gets too close, it's like stand back. Yes, perfect. <laughs> um, I don't, don't think that's me. how they worked, but I hope that's how they worked. Amanda, I really wish I was better at digital illustration. So when I saw this incredible Skillshare class called Digital Illustration for All, discover, cultivate, and share your unique personal style from Lacey Jordan, I was like, oh, dang, Skillshare done it again. I think it is absolute magic whenever I see anybody create any kind of art on a computer. And I I really admire you for getting into that craft. It just seems like something that no human person could learn. You're just kind of born with it. But that's not true. And Skillshare is a really great way to learn new hobbies or to kind of help your profession. Yeah, Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people like us and our listeners. You can explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and get lost in your own creativity. And it's like membership with meaning. Uh, There's so much to explore out there. There's real projects to create, and you get support from fellow creatives. And it's really there to kind of like empower you to accomplish real growth. It's curated like specifically for learning, meaning there's no ads and they're always launching these new premium classes. So there's always new content out there. So you can really like stay focused and follow whatever your creativity is taking you. And it's less than $10 a month with an annual subscription. So you can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com spirits. And the first thousand people to use our link will get a free trial of Skillshare premium membership. Again, you can take amazing classes like digital illustration for all. I really, really enjoyed it. I love the style that Lacey Jordan has, and it just, uh, it was so much fun to take. Again, explore your creativity at Skillshare.com spirits, and the first thousand people who use our link will get a free trial of Skillshare premium membership. We are also sponsored by BetterHelp, which is the way that I get therapized each and every week <laughs> and the way that over a million people have also taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. BetterHelp is an awesome way to start communicating with a licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. Definitely not possible in traditional offline counseling. It's not a crisis line and it's also not self-help. It is just professional counseling done securely online. There are a ton of people with different areas of expertise, which might not be locally available. 
available to you. They're available for clients worldwide, no matter where you live. And you can also log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. I usually do phone meetings with my counselor, but we did a video meeting recently just because it, you know, it can be good to sort of see body language and kind of get to know mm. each other that way. And there really is that flexibility to do video messaging or phone sessions. So no more waiting rooms with weird Muzak and old copies of The New Yorker. They're so faded. I hate it. So faded. So BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. And truly, can't we all use it? Everybody could use therapy and BetterHelp is a great way to get it. So go to betterhelp.com spirits. That's better H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. This special offer for spirits listeners get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com spirits. That's 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. And then I feel like lately a lot of people have been asking me about CBD, and I am so glad that I have a company straight out of Vermont that I can recommend to those people, and that is Sunsoil. So they make a CBD oil that is USDA certified organic. They farm their hemp in Vermont. They never use pesticides, herbicides, or GMOs. And I really, I, I honestly, I try to be super mindful about what I'm putting in my body. And that is why I love Sunsoil because they use simple ingredients that I know. I look at those ingredients and I know exactly what they are. Most of their products just contain coconut oil and hemp. That's it. I really like the cinnamon flavored oil drops that I put in my tea. And it just kind of like mellows me out before I go to bed. And it's really nice and relaxing. And again, I really like how transparent they are. So they clearly label the amount of CBD that's in each serving. My little dropper thing that comes with my oil shows me how much in measurements are on the dropper, which I really like, and I've never seen a dropper do that before. And they test every batch of product at three independent labs and publish the results on their website. So you know what's going on with it all the time. So Sunsoil makes CBD oil with simple organic ingredients. You can get 30% off your first order by going to sunsoil.com slash spirits. That's S-U-N-S-O-I-L dot com slash spirits for 30% off your first order. Sunsoil.com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. So yeah, so they they were there were all of these uh scam products and sort of like snake oil salesmen going around the country, especially in the US, of course, mm -hmm. um, sort of like selling these electrical products. It's like, you know, bioelectricity as a thing. Because of that, bioelectricity got this pretty bad reputation among actual scientists, right? Because they were like, this is a scam. They're like, this is just a showman thing. There's not actually anything happening here. They sort of finally understood that, you know, Many muscles have electrical potentials and like why they respond to electricity. Around the same time, the U.S. was trying to clean up its medical education. Um, and there were a lot of medical schools out there. And some of them were good and some of them were not so good. Sure. <laughs> and there was this question of like, how do you accredit a medical school? You know, all of this stuff. I mean, there was no now we have medical schools that like, you know, you can't just like open up your own medical school. You and I could not do that. Um <laughs> Which is probably a good thing. Uh, I do not think we are qualified. Um, yeah. But yeah, so so there was this guy who was sort of commissioned to kind of clean up medical schools or at least propose a method of cleaning up medical schools. And one of the things that he put out in his ev eventual report, the Flexner report, is that non-traditional, non-allopathic medicine should not be taught. So bioelectricity was in that category. Mm-hmm. And so for many, many years, there's the Flexner Report is very controversial for a lot of good reasons. It's super racist. They basically used it to shut down mm. all the black medical schools except for two. Mm. Um, there is a very 
clear lineage there. And there's also there was actually some really interesting recent work that tried to estimate how many black doctors could have gotten their degrees if they had gone through these black institutions. Oof. And like mm. the 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 racial imbalance in medicine is obviously a huge problem and has real impacts on the ways in which people are treated. So the Flexner Report is like this very fascinating document that um, had has a really terrible legacy in many ways. Yeah. It also, less importantly, uh, eliminated bioelectricity as a thing to study, as a thing to teach, mm-hmm. which is sort of interesting because bioelectricity actually is a real thing. Like, you know, and is useful in certain contexts. And in fact, there's some really fascinating research covered recently on Flash Forward. (laughs) (laughs) Plug, plug, plug. uh, Yeah, (laughs) rate, review, and subscribe. Um, um, That uh, looks at actually using bioelectricity to do things like herd cells, right? So each cell has um, electrical potential. If you cut yourself, there's actually a difference in electrical potential in the middle of the wound to the outside of the wound, which is partially how your skin cells know to grow to the middle. And like that's how they kind of, that's how wounds heal. And so there's this idea that you could use the bioelectricity and bioelectrical concepts to actually herd cells and have them go where you want to go or have them go away from things you don't want to, to be at. So that could have applications for things like cancer and things like that. Wow, that's awesome. I, I recall being taught in um, high school that the nervous system functions like using and or like quite like electricity. So, I mean, it makes it makes total sense to me. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Right. And like, you know, action potential, right, is like a thing that, yeah. you know, people people learn about. And at the same time, like when you and, and the researcher I talked to who is like, at Princeton, like very legit researcher, not kind of like trying to scam anybody into buying an electrical corset. He'll go to and give talks and he'll have like doctors be like skeptical because they were never, ever taught anything about this stuff because because it's been sort of eliminated from the curriculum in so many places Um, because of this legacy of like scamming. And and even today, when you read these papers about bioelectricity, many of them reference Frankenstein. Many of them are like, I know this sounds like Frankenstein, but hear me out. It's real science, you know, in this way that I think is really fascinating that like you just cannot escape this story. And uh, I think, I mean, like horror can't escape this story. The story is everywhere. We all still know it. You know, Mary Shelley was really not ever famous for anything else. Like no one Mm. ever read any of her other work. Her letters and this are the two things that we get from her. She does revise Frankenstein between 1818 when it first comes out and 1831. Mm. And interestingly, she revises it not just for like language, but also for content. So (laughs) she revises it. The first version of this can very much be read, and I think it's fair to say, is a woman processing grief and loss of a child, right? Sure. Um, And thinking about, like, what if we could bring people back or what if we could create life? In 1818, she had lost her – she had had this miscarriage. In 1831, she had already had two children and both of them had died. Um, Wow. And so she – like, it's it's an interesting and different – one example of the differences are that so when um, Dr. Frankenstein first brings the monster to life, there's this moment where he's like totally repulsed by the monster. Fun fact, in the book, the monster has yellow skin. In mm. almost all of the movie versions, it's green because yellow doesn't read on camera, especially on old cameras very well. And oh. so they change it to green. I did know that one. I love that. Frankenstein is supposed to be yellow. <laughs> Also, no neck bolts. I don't no know. Neck who bolts, threw no that neck in. bolts. Yeah. And also, in, another fun fact. So, the reason Frankenstein is very large, and he is very large in the book as well. And this is actually so interesting to me because it is, it is true um, to modern science. The doctor talks about how it's actually very 
challenging to create out of nothing organs and like the sort of small details of the human body. So we actually make them bigger to make it easier to make. Yeah. Cool. Which is totally true when you talk about like trying to 3D print organs. Like there's a lot of little tiny shit inside of our bodies <laughs> that like is actually really complicated. Um, so he's huge. But so there's this moment in the, in the book, in, in all versions of the book, where the monster is animated and comes to life for the first time and its eyes open and um, the doctor regards the monster for the first time. And in the 1818 version, the monster, the reaction is to just freak out and run away. And sure. he's just like, I can, like, this was not what I thought. He, so he had tried to make the monster beautiful. That is a very explicit thing that they state in the book. And that did not happen. And so this sort of like the hideousness, the physical hideousness of the monster is a very important part of the story, obviously. And so in the 1818 version, he just like bolts and leaves. Mm. In the 1831 version, he's a lot more um, sympathetic to the monster. And he sort of like, he sees him as like poor and helpless and miserable. And he's like, he has a much more sort of maternal instinct to the monster in this mm. way that is very interesting. If you consider that in 1818, Mary Shelley had not really had a baby. I mean, she she'd had this miscarriage, but she had not raised a child. 1831, she's raised two and they have both died. And so there's like this change in the way that she is thinking about what Frankenstein's sin really is, right? So in the first book, the sort of, and this is all my ver argument. Other yeah, literary no, scholars it. may disagree with this, but in my, in my reading, in the first book, Victor Frankenstein's sin, his main sin, the big thing that he did wrong was that he abandoned this child of his, that he like mm. left. That's something that I think is not obvious from film and TV adaptations yeah. and just general pop culture is that the, the creature like wants to be raised yes. and taught and yes. it's sort of like rampage, you know, is a result of rejection from a number of people. Totally. Yes, exactly. And then in the 1831 version of the book, it's changed to be that his his sin is like playing God and thinking that he can do this and thinking mm. that he can create these things, which is a pretty different thing than abandoning yeah. what you've created. Right. And like that is a really interesting tension to me that I'm fascinated by, where you have this woman who wrote I mean, wrote both of these versions. And this is why I tell people they should read both because there are these really interesting differences between the two. And I think it's like you can totally see her thinking change on what the story is. The 1831 version also is softened in some very interesting ways to not be quite so radical about like women doing things on their own. <laughs> like There's like other things in it that they sort of like she tones down. But that's kind of to me the main thrust of the big difference between the two is that you actually like the sort of original sin of Victor Frankenstein is totally different between the two of them. And you can kind of read it as like her changing her feelings about what the story is even about. And I think in the movie adaptations, often it is about like, oh, he's playing God. Like, how could he think he has this power? Mm -hmm. You know, all this stuff. It's not as much about sort of like the question of abandonment and care and like what your responsibility is to something that you create, which is a really interesting distinction. And it's a really interesting reflection on parenthood, too, is the idea that you are creating something that you will not have full control over. Like in creating totally. a person, you are kind of just like hoping that you can raise this person right, but they are still out of your control for a certain amount of time, you know? And the sort of project of creating a family, whether that's infertility or negotiating different systems of, of adoption and making different families, you know, everybody kind of grows up assuming that that's 
available easily if that's a thing that you want. And I can definitely see, you know, to your point, Julia, that the latter version says like, God, you know, wow, I thought that I could just do this. And life doesn't work out that way. Yeah. Well, in the monster too, right? Part of the tension in the second half of the book is that he wants a partner. He wants someone like him to Mm -hmm. have a family, to have this thing. And the question of whether or not Victor Frankenstein will do it or not is kind of the animating plot point of the second half of the book. This is like the oft parodied like, oh, Mrs. Frankenstein, you know, he wants a mate, etc. But in the books, he talks about he's lonely, right? He doesn't have anyone to talk to. Mm. And obviously, you know, I, I, I feel like there's no spoilers in Frankenstein. It was published in 1818. <laughs> like, you know, it's been point, a while. Like, yeah. Like the statute of limitations on spoilers has run out. Um, but he doesn't do it, right? He destroys the the companion that he makes, mm. which is sort of uh, an interesting choice to also be read around, like, who gets to choose what your family is and who you are. You know, Mary Shelley's mother died when she was very, very young. She never really knew her. She was very close with her father. When her father remarried and had other kids, there was a lot of tension around, like, she was kind of the favorite because she was kind of this precocious, young, you know, very smart person. I mean, she wrote this when she was 18. She wrote Frankenstein when she was 18 years old. Jeez. And there's a big difference between 18 and 13 years later when she revised the book. So yeah, that's, yeah. Totally. And um, also, you know, her Percy Shelley um, doesn't live very long either, right? So she Mm -hmm. like loses a lot of people in her family um, and also kind of has this very tortured and tenuous relationship with her father, who is also like by all descriptions kind of like not a great guy. Like he's this academic thinker anarchist but like also has a reputation for being kind of mean and like all Mm. these other things but he you know his his relationship with her was um a point of contention with his second wife and their other kids because like you know as family is complicated yeah (laughs) and yeah and so she she has this story of these people searching for family and the other piece of this is that the monster murders pretty much everybody that Victor Frankenstein loves, right? His friends, yeah. his fiance, you know, like his family. And so this question of like loss and grief is like runs throughout the entire story in all of its versions, which is, I mean, like for an 18 year old, it's a lot to have written. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it was received very Interestingly, the other interesting fact I will add is that in 1818 and even 1831, like talking about things like this openly about grief and about sort of like miscarriage even was like not a thing people were doing. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Mary Shelley was perhaps inspired in part to be honest in the fictional sense about this because her father wrote a biography slash memoir ish of of her mother after she died Mm. and in it talked about you know, illegitimate children, talked about miscarriage, talked about her suicidal ideation. And that book was super controversial because people were like, you do not talk about this stuff. This is not appropriate to put in a biography. And so I think that she she was around all of these ideas about like what is and is not okay to disclose and sort of what these stories should look like. And I mean, I think beyond just knowing that being a woman and having her name on a book would be hard. I, I think that's probably partially why she didn't put her name on the 1818 version, because it does deal with so many of these pretty intense topics that like many people feel uh, felt and probably still do in some cases feel are like not appropriate for women <laughs> to be discussing <laughs> and talking about. 
And this is also decades before that sort of like Victorian mourning culture began. Prince Albert didn't die until 1861. I just looked up. I didn't know that year. Um, (laughs) And then Queen Victoria's like, you know, wearing black and kind of having a a really profound and public display of grief kicked off the, you know, hair of deceased loved ones as jewelry and like all the kind of things that I think most people know happened in the sort of Victorian age. But that didn't happen yet. Like this is way before people even like acknowledge death with their clothing or in the decoration of their homes after somebody dies. Yeah. And, and you know, this in, it's 19, it's 1798 that her father publishes this book about her. Wow. Mother. That's early. It's super early. And it was like, it, and he also interestingly says that he was totally blindsided by the reaction. Like he thought this was this like compassionate portrait of this woman that he loved. And to get this, and he was like, this is an important piece of work. She was this really interesting scholar. I want to talk about her. I want to kind of like have her, you know, be out there. And the reaction that he got, I think, was very surprising to him because he sort of was like, I'm, I'm, he sort of, I mean, it actually have not read his memoir or his biography of her. Um, I would love to because like, it actually sounds like the kind of thing like a modern memoir or biography would talk about all of these yeah. things, right? Um, but at the time, it was like, no, 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 you don't talk about suicide attempts. You do not talk about love affairs. You do not talk about illegitimate children. You do not talk about any of these things. And he did because he was like, this is who she was, right? Like, this is, yeah. you know, this, this is, is her life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Mary Shelley also does not live very long. She dies of a brain tumor at age 53. Yeah. So wow. she is not around for very long either. So um, yeah, a lot of death. A lot of death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It kind of just surrounded her her entire life, huh? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was reading earlier about the the various um, astronomers' attempts to like confirm that Mary Shelley did see yeah. a moon, which like <laughs> I both appreciate and also I'm like, this is absurd that like yes. very smart people are spending a lot of their time to like prove this thing that this woman said that, like we have no reason to doubt. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So I think I will say I do think that hair jewelry starts in the 1600s. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But I do like they're like the the like full out Victorian like mourning thing doesn't happen for a little bit later than that. Yeah. So Percy Shelley dies at 29. He drowns. His boat gets caught in a storm and he drowns, um, which is a really bad way to go, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's um, not great. Anyway, so um, she decided that she wanted to keep something from her now dead husband. And the Mm -hmm. thing that she wanted to keep was his heart. (laughs) Yep. And so she just took it. She just took his heart and was like, I'm going to keep this. And uh, so he was cremated, but without his heart. So she had it and she just like kept it on her desk, like as the thing, just like to have on her desk. Incredible. Which is incredible. Um, I will say that um, there is a guy who um, is uh, who studies fungus, um, but he is a person who has had a heart transplant and he actually also has his own heart on his desk in like a little thing, which I would totally do if I had... Like, God if I could, was able to, I'd be like, yeah, give me that heart. I want that oh, heart. Oh, 100%. I get it. I get it. That's like, look at what I've conquered. I have conquered I death, and here awesome. I still stand. Yeah. I had benign tumors removed from my hand when I was a kid, and they the, the doctor was like, it is disgusting, and you do not want it, because, but I really wanted to. Yeah. I was like a, a 12-year-old kid who was like, but it's poetic, and he was like, no. <laughs> Small child, I no. I did demand, yeah, I demanded my IUD when it was removed, so I have that. Um, which, like, yeah. technically they're not supposed to give you, because it's technically bio waste 
and whatever. So the other thing about <laughs> Percy Shelley's heart to say is that there is a story, and I don't actually know um, if this is true or not. So the story goes that they they cremated him, but his heart wouldn't burn. That like yeah, for I some heard it was reason, calcified or something. Yeah, yeah, it was calcified. I don't know if that's true or not. I have some skepticism around that idea that like I can't imagine it would be. Yeah, and like I just don't. I, it would disintegrate even if it doesn't burn, right? Like yeah. I, yeah. And so I need to. I would need to look into this. I actually haven't looked into this because it is a good story that like they tried to burn him and his heart was just like laying there, which is this amazing image of like the calcified heart. <laughs> I should look into this because um, it would it would be very it, it would be interesting to know like how much evidence there is that that is exactly what happened. So he did have tuberculosis when he was a kid, mm. and that can cause some calcification of. The heart. But like if his heart was calcified to the point where it wouldn't burn, then it wouldn't be functional. Like he would have been dead. <laughs> like it's yep. just like that's not really yep. like, yeah. yeah, or even like deposits or build up, you know, I feel like the muscle would definitely start going. Right. And like he did not die of a heart condition, he drowned, right? So yeah. like, you know, maybe it was like some it was it was coming for him, but I feel like that's probably not what happened. Although I want to believe that is a very like fitting Mary Shelley thing to have happen where you like walk up to the pyre and your you know husband's ashes are everywhere and his heart is just laying there. That's a great image. I just don't know that it's true. <laughs> well, I do really like that a lot of her life has been kind of uh, like created into legend, you know, like the idea that she lost her virginity on her mother's grave is another one that I absolutely adore. I don't know how true that is. I do not think that is true. <laughs> but it's wonderful. It's a very cool fake fact. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Well, it is like she is the like mother of horror, right? Like, that yeah. is, like and so all these like ideas around like what is sacrilegious, what is horrific, what is scary and like how she and she was surrounded by death like lots and lots yeah. of things happened to her so yeah like give give her that if that if that's what she wants I don't know I'm I'm all for Mary Shelley having whatever m memory of her that she would desire and if that means that she lost her virginity on her mom's grave go for it like I'm for I'm it I'm into it <laughs> yeah. honestly See, I think it's way more metal to to take your husband's perfectly fine heart as a token than to have like it feels like it's it's kind of mythologizing Percy for the fact that like his heart would not burn. Mm. Um, so I, I like that Mary just like knew what she wanted and took it like so much <laughs> of her story and like biographical criticism is not the only way to interpret literature. That means like looking at the biography of the author and their life and kind of how that impacted what um, they they wrote. It's not the be all and end all. But in this case, I, I love this idea that, you know, we think of grief and death so often as like an abandonment or at least as a, a lonely thing. And she has given so many people a, uh, a a voice, like a space, a way to think about this in a way that is like kind of from the side and a little bit more approachable than thinking about something tragic head on um, and just sort of carving out space for herself, not just in a profession or in publishing, but in in her life and like not being defined by her losses, but by what she made instead. Yeah, I also love to that point of like her taking what she wants. There is a story. And again, I do not know how true it is about the heart where um, somebody else tried to claim it. I believe it was his friend who was like there at the time tried to make a claim on the heart and Mary Shelley was like absolutely not like <laughs> that is mine <laughs> <Punch> <laughs> <in the laughs> she face. Like, yeah she took it um which is sort of is sort of interesting um the other thing is that it was eventually so eventually the heart was buried in the sort of like Shelley family vault mm. which was buried I believe in like 1889 or 1890 mm -hmm. and it was wrapped in they wrapped uh the heart in 
a copy of one of his poems to like oh man steal it as like just the <laughs> these classic. romantics yeah yeah it is it is like creepy romantic in a way that I kind of love I mean this is after you know she was dead so it was a, it was a decision made by her son I believe but yeah it's a lot yeah she's a fascinating lady and I just like I don't know I would love to know also like what she thinks about the way people talk about Frankenstein now yeah. and all the movie adaptations and like the parodies yeah. I mean do you two have a favorite Frankenstein movie adaptation I really love the stage adaptation that the National Theater did in like the late aughts or early 20 teens starring Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch. They switched off the roles of Frankenstein and the creature every night and it was filmed for National Theater Live. So you can definitely find a copy on the internet. But I I love that they really documented the process of the creature like learning and growing up to be a person. And to me, that really evokes the like abandonment um, theme and feeling better than any adaptation I've seen. See, Amanda gave a really good good thoughtful answer and my instinct is like well young frankenstein obviously yeah. <laughs> it's also very good it's a good yeah. movie yeah 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 i do i have a very soft spot for young frankenstein i think i probably saw that movie before i read frankenstein I think oh 100 for me yeah yeah i think also like i avoided reading frankenstein for a while a because i don't really read horror i'm, I'm actually very easily spooked but also like like I said, like many books from 1818 are like not good to read. Like they're not yeah, readable. No. Whereas I will say like Frankenstein is very readable. Like I, I would highly recommend it. It is also like it's a frame story, right? I love a good frame story. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, me too. Like, it's like, like, oh, we the found these letters. All my papers in college were like, did you know there's metatextual elements? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I love that like we at some point abandoned that where it's like, I mean, honestly, I feel like there's a parallel in podcasting where like there is still this idea that like you need to explain where the tape came from in yes. fictional podcasts in this like framey <laughs> way. And it's like, or you yeah. can literally just tell the story. and It's fine. Yeah, like, it's fine. It's fine. Well, you know, I was I was revisiting Dracula recently and I forgot it's also like a story yes. within a story. It's like, oh, we found these letters and these diaries and here's what happened, you know? Exactly. Yes, exactly. I do love also that Frankenstein Stein does something very unusual in the way it is written, especially for the time, which is it does switch off points of view, right? Yeah. So you switch between the, yeah. the doctor and the creature. And that is not something that you saw very often in books written in 1818, right? This like mm-hmm. sort of switching of, of perspectives, which actually lends itself to what you were describing, Amanda, the 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 play, which I actually kind of love the idea of them switching back and forth um, yeah. different nights. That's really interesting. I, w- I will have to check that out. I do. I do love. I don't know. There's just something so interesting about that story. And like my fr- I have a friend who's blind who loves the fact that like the only person who cares about this monster is the blind guy <laughs> who's yep. like, you seem yeah. good. <laughs> like, yeah, seem chill. <laughs> yeah um and who like can't convince his family to 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 do it um i just also love that this whole story starts with, like a volcanic eruption in 1815 like that's just the stage it's made for horror <laughs> yeah exactly. like if this wasn't the birth of the horror genre i would still be like i choose this version because it's just <laughs> totally. so good yes totally yeah yeah and she, yeah they're just all fascinating oh one person did say which i think is fun is that the book itself is such a cornerstone that it can be used in multiple different courses. So they had to read it in a philosophy course, a science ethics class, and an anthropology course, which I think it's like is a testament, cool. right, to like the ways Incredible. in which... Yeah, totally. I read it in like a survey of um, Anthropocene media before that was a very well-known term um, about sort of like human uh, human urges to harness environmental processes like for personal gain, which is the story of humanity. Hey. Yeah. Apparently in the film Bride of Frankenstein, the bride is a redhead, but you can't tell because it's a black and white film. 
Yep, that makes sense. <laughs> Which is sort of interesting. I think the yellow skin to green skin yellow thing is going to be my yeah. persisting fact. Here's a fun fact that I actually know off the top of my head. When they filmed Young Frankenstein, they had to do him in blue because they just couldn't get the right color with the black and white film that they were using. Ah, fun. Blue. That's I wish I want to see pictures of that to like yeah. see it. Um, I have two other ones that I'll say. One of them I just think is funny. Tim Carmody, who's very smart and funny on Twitter, um, shout out to Tim, um, <laughs> said that he I'll just gonna read his tweet because it's very funny. He says, Mary Shelley could have written lots of different kinds of books about Byron, and she picked a timeless <laughs> monster story. Which I Incredible. Very funny. Mm. The other one that I just thought of that I think is amazing um, is the film version of Frankenstein, 1931, Boris Karloff, actually has is responsible in many ways for actor protections and mm-hmm. much of like actor organizing because wow. he was asked to put on this incredibly heavy suit basically to play Frankenstein with all yeah. the stuff and the shoes and everything else. And they were asking him to work these just like absolutely unreal hours and he was exhausted and it was just brutal. It was totally brutal. And he finally was like, this is not okay. Like we can't like this is not an okay thing to be asking. And he got he kept getting sick and he whatever. And so he actually because of that experience wound up organizing and creating an actors guild essentially and like pushing back on like how many hours you can ask someone to work and actually creating worker protections for actors because of having to play Frankenstein in 1931. So that's a fun oh, fact yeah. about Frankenstein. <laughs> Thanks, Boris Karloff. Incredible. There's a great, um, you uh, must remember this episode, actually, about this Frankenstein um, and uh, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff as incredible these wonderful men in in some like so thematic conversation with one another. Sawbones also has a really good episode about the uh, like regulating of medical schools and board exams. Oh, Oops. yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Anyway, um, the other thing to know is that uh, in 1816, after... This this summer on the lake where they um, did this horror story contest, they do finally marry uh, Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley, and uh, they marry. Uh, it happens after the suicide of Percy's first wife. Um, they <sighs> do not get married until after she commits suicide, which is uh, pretty terrible. I mean, as as Tim said, Percy Shelley. Um, and Byron as well are both. You could write a lot of monster books about those guys. <laughs> Just messes yeah. of human beings, really. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. So speaking of someone who's not a mess of a human being, Rose, where can people find your work? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, thank you for that. But I also am absolutely (laughs) a different kind of a mess of a human being. I would Let me pay you compliments. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can find me on the internet. I am Rose Eveleth, E-V-E-L-E-T-H, the only Rose Eveleth that you will find for better or for worse. And you can find me on Flash Forward. There is an episode recently called Shock and Awe, which is actually about a lot of this stuff, the history of bioelectricity, the future of bioelectricity, talks a little bit about Frankenstein's more fun facts about Frankenstein. And you can also listen to my show Advice for and from the Future, which is exactly what it sounds like. Advice for and from the future. And the next one we have so coming much. up is one about uh, whether you can ask your friend to turn their Alexa device off when you go to their house. Like, mm. is it okay to be like, hey, can you turn off your listening robots? And like, how do you have that conversation? So those are the kinds of things that we talk about on that show. And yeah, you can find me on the internet. Well, thank you so much, Rose. It was delightful. That was a great conversation. I love talking about people from history. So this was just the best. Thanks for having me. I can talk about Frankenstein all day. And I definitely like people should read the 1918 version. Like check Mm -hmm. it out if you haven't. If you've already even if you think like I already read that, you should check out and make sure you've read the original. Do both. I will for sure. All right. Thanks, Rose. Thank you. And remember, everybody. Stay creepy. Stay cool. 
Thanks again to our sponsors. At Skillshare.com slash spirits, the first thousand people to visit that link will get a free trial of Skillshare Premium. At BetterHelp.com slash spirits, you can get 10% off your first month of counseling. And at SunSoil.com slash spirits, you can get 30% off your first order. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.